This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Our focus, coronavirus, with growing concerns over a new highly contagious variant and what's next as we deal with this pandemic. We will talk to one of America's leading epidemiologists, Dr. Michael Osterholm. He's from the University of Minnesota. It has been nearly a year since we saw the closing of schools and offices. Most travel essentially coming to a halt, our way of life upended. As we look for a return to normalcy with a U.S. vaccine program in place, Dr. Osterholm has this warning. We have a very long road ahead. Uh, I can say that uh, without any doubt at this point, expect more curveballs to get thrown at us. If we'd had this interview 10 weeks ago, we wouldn't have been talking about variants any way that we are now. More of our conversation just ahead. But first, this background. January 1st, 2020, more than 13 months ago. This from BBC Radio. A fourth person has died in China from a new virus that has spread rapidly across the country. The 89-year-old man is the latest victim of the illness that causes a type of pneumonia. Authorities have now confirmed it can be spread person to person with 200 infected so far. And then, just a few weeks after that BBC story in late January of 2020, CNBC.com on coronavirus cases coming to the United States. A deadly new virus has both health experts and investors worried as it starts to spread. As you know, uh, this is an evolving and uh, complex situation. We need more information. Each of these virus has its own personality or characteristics. And as Meg said, we still don't know whether this virus is spread readily from person to person. The coronavirus is in the same family as SARS with cold and flu-like symptoms and is believed to have begun with the transmission from an animal at a market in Wuhan, China. But now, officials have confirmed the virus is capable of human-to-human transmission, and cases of the disease are growing. By March of last year, the full extent of the global pandemic was becoming clear, especially in parts of Europe. Here's ABC's George Stephanopoulos. Overseas now to Italy, where the situation continues to deteriorate. Nearly 500 new deaths, more than 4,000 new cases reported in the last 24 hours. Hospital officials are warning of catastrophe and even more stringent lockdowns are now being proposed. The U.S. leads the world in the number of COVID-19 cases, with the president promising in a CNN town hall meeting that more vaccines are on the way. When is every American who wants it going to be able to get a vaccine? By the end of July of this year, we have we came into office. There was only a 50 million uh, doses that are available. We have now by the end of July, we'll have over 600 million doses enough to vaccinate every single American. And yet, despite an overall drop in the number of coronavirus cases in the first two weeks of February, there is a new, even greater concern because viruses change through mutation. We are now seeing new variants of this illness. This from Great Britain's Sky News. One of the challenges in a pandemic is that you get more information all of the time. Uh, And this new variant of virus is really, really tough to deal with. I mean, it makes the the strategy of suppressing the virus until a vaccine can make us safe. You know, the vaccine bit has just got a whole lot better with the approval this morning. But the suppress the virus bit has got a whole lot harder since the new variant uh, got really got going over um, over December, 
And now the majority of new cases in the UK are the new variant. It is much, much easier tra to transmit from one person to another. That's why it's spreading so much faster. So the challenge of suppressing the virus has got harder. But thankfully, the cavalry have arrived in terms of not one but two vaccines. And we've got to get those into people's arms as just as fast as they can be produced. New concerns over the variant is where we begin on the weekly our conversation with Dr. Michael Osterholm. Four years ago, he came out with the book Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs. He is the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. My opening question, why we're seeing new strains of this deadly virus. To understand variants, you have to realize that viruses mutate all the time. We've had many, many variants, which are viruses that have had a, one or more mutations. And the viruses, though, that are our concern to us, that we call variants, are the ones we call variants of concern. And these are uh, variants that have a series of mutations that does one of three things. One, causes uh, enhanced transmission. Two, can increase the severity of the disease. Or three, avoid the immune protection from either vaccine or natural infection. Some variants have all three of those characteristics. Some have uh, one or two. The variant that we're really most concerned about at this point that's really staring us down in the United States is the B117 variant that appeared to have originated in the UK, but now is spread to a number of countries around the world. Uh, this particular variant uh, has the ability to uh, be much more highly transmissible uh, than previous virus uh, variants. And it also, uh, now the data are becoming increasingly clear, it can cause more severe illness. So the fact that it is now transmitting widely throughout the United States, we believe is a harbinger of things to come because as this very situation has occurred throughout countries in Europe, in the Middle East, and then after several weeks or more of this transmission that we picked up, it then surged and the case numbers grew quite dramatically in a short period of time. So is it safe to say that with coronavirus or any pandemic, this is not unusual? Well, I have to say this is unusual in the sense that uh, anything about a coronavirus pandemic right now is new for us. Uh, you know, the historic model of respiratory transmitted uh, viruses uh, that cause pandemics uh, have been those of influenza virus uh, origin. And so what we're seeing here is different. Uh, for example, an influenza pandemic, uh, typically you see it come in waves uh, and such that um, you will see it in a given area of the world, a given country, for six to eight to ten weeks, and then disappear on its own. Nothing that humans did to make it go away, only to show up again uh, eight, ten, or twelve weeks later, and then be around again for a second wave. Uh, that even happened as recently as 2009 with H1N1 influenza, where it showed up in Mexico and then through North American parts of the world from March through May, uh, decreasing substantially in May, not because of anything humans did. And then it uh, picked up again in late August, particularly here in the United States, the southern states. Uh, again, major peak in cases uh, in late September, early October, and then dropped off quickly after that. With this coronavirus pandemic, we just see it coming and coming and coming. And while there are surges up and down, it never really goes away. And this is the challenge we have. Now we've added in this idea of the variants. Influenza viruses can change, but when they change over time, that typically means that the pandemic strain becomes a seasonal flu strain. 
Then we just see it with the normal flu season. We don't know what this virus is going to do. And particularly because we don't have vaccines for much of the world today, uh, we can expect even with high vaccine coverage in high-income countries, we're still going to see a substantial amount of virus transmission around the world, which is just likely going to bring us more of these variants, which we don't know will they in fact evade the protection that we get from either vaccines or from natural infections. And as you know, Dr. Rosselholm, the debate continues over the origins of this, whether it came from a lab or whether it came from animals. What is your theory as we first began to learn about coronavirus from Wuhan, China, just over a year ago? Well, just in the information we've had from the WHO team that went to China, and I've had an opportunity to talk to several of the uh, investigators who are on that team, I think it's it's clear that there is no smoking gun, no evidence that the lab itself played a role in either the accidental or intentional release of the virus. At the same time, we have identified now uh, basically uh, precursor viruses or ones that really uh, are very uh, clear and compelling uh, in their chemical and, and genetic makeup that they very well could be the viruses that then uh, turned into what we now see today in an animal population. And so I think that the the origin is still a question. Uh, when and where did it really first emerge out of the animal population? But I think that that's really the focus of where we're at today. And uh, so we still have more information to gather to know when exactly did it first uh, appear in humans and where did it first appear. Um, and then from there, uh, you know, we can understand more about how it evolved into the rest of the world. But I, I think that the the whole issue of a laboratory-based man-made virus is off the table. So based on that, in hindsight, what do you think the Chinese government should have done differently during the early stages of this pandemic? Well, you know, I can't say that I know what they did exactly, and we're going to have to wait for the WHO team to give us more information about that. Uh, This is an important lesson to be learned by all, because uh, as you recall, in 2009, H1N1 actually emerged in Mexico. So it's not as if somehow this is just all about China. What we're really looking at or looking for is what lessons can we learn so that we uh, don't repeat them in the future. And at this point, I just don't think we, we know yet uh, what they did or didn't do in a way that can say, boy, if they'd done this, this, or this, it may have made a big difference uh, versus what they actually did. Let me remind our listeners, we are talking with Dr. Michael Osterholm. He is the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, part of the University of Minnesota. We're ramping up our vaccine program here in the United States, but it's really at different levels in different parts of the world. You've expressed some concerns about that recently. Can you explain? Well, one of the things that uh, we have to confront right now is this emerging challenge with B117 virus. And I think the potential for a major surge of cases over the next five to 14 weeks is real. Uh, If that were to happen, the challenge would be, well, how much vaccine have you gotten into people who are most likely to have severe illness? And of our own data here, and as we look at it, if we continue to follow the path we're on and we accommodate for the number of doses that are coming down the uh, pike, Uh, By the end of March, we will still have over 30 million of the 54 million 65 years of age and older individuals in this country not vaccinated. That's 30 million. 
Well, we know that that's the group that's most likely to have severe illness, need hospitalization, and unfortunately die. And so in that regard, uh, it's not that anyone is not doing what they're hoping to do or want to do. It's a matter we just don't have enough vaccine. And uh, so one of the challenges I think we're going to have is, does that mean that we then want to consider changing how we're delivering the vaccine? Uh, right now, only about a third of the vaccine being distributed is going to those 65 years of age and older. Yet we know over 80% of the deaths are in that group. So I think at this point, it's going to be a real a challenge for us to know what to do in the next weeks ahead. Some will say, you know, don't change what you're currently doing. Just keep putting it out there. Others are going to say, oh, my, if we really uh, believe that this surge is likely to happen and uh, we see a very big increase in the number of serious illnesses, hospitalization and deaths in older people, what can we do to target them with vaccine right now? And what do we know about vaccine programs in developing countries? You know, we know very little. We do know that uh, right now in countries whose population total more than 210 billion people, there's not a drop of vaccine in the country. And so uh, at this point, I think it's really uh, a challenge uh, for us to uh, realize that it's not just about being altruistic. It's not just about, you know, humanitarian, which hopefully it would be in getting vaccine to low and middle income countries, but it's also a strategic issue because if in fact we do vaccinate many in the high income countries and feel protected, if the virus is raging in low and middle income countries, that's where we're going to see these variants created in that kind of setting, which are the very variants that could ultimately then minimize the potential benefit of our own vaccines. So we want to get rid of this virus everywhere in the world as quickly as possible. And so we have to understand how critical it is at this point to be sure that all of our plans include low and middle income countries and their vaccine needs as soon as possible. Because this is a new vaccine for this pandemic, do you have a sense of how long the vaccination will last with individuals? Will it last a year, six months, a couple of years? Yeah, at this point, we just don't know. Uh, you know, we'll be doing ongoing research to understand that and what level of protection might occur. We also don't understand yet what we might have to do to deal with the variants that uh, are now uh, present that may evade the immune protection of a vaccine, whether that's going to mean booster doses or another dose of some kind. Uh, I think these are all still on the table, and they are real challenges, but that's what we need to do is be addressing them right now. The other thing I think that's going to be critical is over time, we are going to likely need new and much more comprehensive vaccines. The ones we have now are doing their job that we asked them to do. Uh, but do we need more sophisticated vaccines that can bring in other parts of our immune response as humans that might give us the ability to deal with these variants in, in a different way? So, so expect the whole vaccine world with COVID to evolve over time. But for right now, we uh, just need to know that for most of the world, where these variants that cause the virus to evade immune protection are not that common yet, and uh, that the vaccines we do have uh, can, can actually provide uh, very, very good protection. So what I hear you saying is we're just at the beginning of this. We still have a long road ahead. We have a very long road ahead. Uh, I can say that... Uh, Without any doubt at this point, expect more curveballs to get thrown at us. If we'd had this interview 10 weeks ago, 
we wouldn't have been talking about variants in any way that we are now. And yet, look where we're at today, talking about the severe challenges they present. So, you know, I would expect the unexpected. It's still out there. There's much we can do. But at this point, um, you know, this is not going to be over with uh, anytime soon. Because we're hearing that the number of cases beginning to drop over the last couple of weeks. Are some people breathing a sigh of relief? And is that uh, is it too early to do that? Well, just to remember that we have a challenge, what I call shifting baselines. Back in April, when we had 32,000 cases a day in this country, with New York particularly hard hit, you know, people said, well, it can't get any worse than this. And then case numbers went down by, uh, you know, down to about 20,000 by Memorial Day. Uh, and then we saw a big peak in July, getting to 70,000 cases a day. And people said, well, this can't get any worse than that. And then cases came back down around Labor Day into the low 20,000 cases a day again. And then you saw cases rapidly escalate in October into November. We got to 200,000 cases a day by November 8th. Cases dropped back down to 150,000 reported cases a day by early December. And then the next peak uh, took off. And we were at 300,000 cases a day uh, in early January. Then they've come down again. And we seem to have a very short memory that how quickly these surges can go up and come down. And I think right now B117, the UK variant, poses a tremendous threat that we could see a surge in the next five to 14 weeks that could be much larger than any of the ones we've already had. So I don't take any comfort right now in the fact that case numbers have come down. I'm glad that they're down. I don't want anyone to ever get infected with this virus. I don't want anyone to be seriously ill or die. But I also am a realist to know that we're far from over with this. And right now, opening up as we are everything, which I understand also from an economic standpoint, uh, from our elected officials, uh, you know, what it does for our economy. But we're inviting this virus to just enhance its transmission over the weeks ahead. And I think we're going to pay a big price for that. Over the past year, you have really become a very visible expert on this, and we thank you for your time today here on C-SPAN. But let's take a step back and ask about you, your background, and why this is your passion. Well, in fact, uh, you know, I've been in infectious diseases now for 46 years. And in the um, uh, period of uh, the 1970s, when I started at the Minnesota Department of Health, we were actually quite involved with the vaccination program for what then was considered swine flu and the challenge it posed for a pandemic. Um, our group was the one that actually discovered cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome on vaccinees, and which ended ultimately ended the program. Um, but at that point, I would, you know, my interest was really peaked in influenza and the ability to have pandemics occur. And at that point, we in fact had seen. 10 influenza pandemics in the previous uh, uh, 250 years that were devastating. So I took a real interest in that. I became more interested in understanding about 1918 what happened. And then uh, I continued to work closely in the influenza world. Um, Early on in uh, the 1990s, when we started looking at uh, pandemic preparedness and the issue of, of what would happen with new emerging infections, I got very active there. I actually wrote a a paper in 2005 in the New England Journal of Medicine, why we weren't ready for the next pandemic. Uh, wrote a similar paper in Foreign Affairs in 2005, a paper which, by the way, um, served as the jumping off point 
for a paper I was asked to write for Foreign Affairs this year, this past year, uh, in which I used the final paragraph of the 2005 paper as my first paragraph of this paper, and it fit in perfectly. Why weren't we ready? So I've, I've been actively involved in calling the kind of the question why we're not more prepared and able to respond. And I wrote a book, a uh, New York Times bestselling book in 2017, Deadliest Enemies, Our War Against Killer Germs, which I went into great detail how ill-prepared we were for exactly what's happening right now. And unfortunately, um, it's, it's all happened. What are your big questions with coronavirus? What puzzles you the most about this pandemic? You know, I, I think at this point, it's fair to say is what is the next shoot drop? <laughs> you know, what, what is the curveball that's going to throw at us? And just being able to anticipate that in advance so that we know how to uh, move from a policy standpoint, how to deal with the issue from a prevention standpoint. So to me, I think that's the big challenge we have right now. I think a lot of people feel like, you know, we've learned so much about this virus. We know this virus. And I have to say with all honesty and real humility, I probably know less about this virus today than I did 10 weeks ago. And uh, I think we have to have a real dose of humility right now to understand what do we know and not know about this virus and how are we going to learn more so that we can, in fact, protect the world against its ongoing occurrence. I have to say that is a stunning statement from you that we know less today. I do. I know others would probably disagree. They would say they know more. I think just the more I've learned, the less I know. What will the next six to nine months look like? As you know, President Biden indicating that uh, Americans will have their vaccines in place sometime by the end of July and that next Christmas will seem very different from this past Christmas. Do you agree with that? Well, I think it's going to depend on what the variants do. If we're not taking care of the vaccine needs of low and middle income countries, we're going to see a lot of transmission there, which a lot of variants are going to get produced. And how do they relate to how well our vaccines work? So to me, there's still a lot of unknowns. I think that the president's statement is right on the mark. If we don't see variants emerge that affect the protection from the vaccine, I think we're going to see a big improvement in this country by this summer. But, uh, you know, these variants are still the wild card that we don't understand. So let me just ask you one other point regarding masks and what society will be dealing with in the coming months. Well, at this point, a uh, vaccine is by far the single most important important weapon we have to for long-term prevention as we know it. But distancing in the meantime is still critical. It's really critical. And uh, we have to understand that we can do a lot to protect ourselves through the mitigation of just distancing from potentially infected people, from using high-quality respiratory protection masks, and we just need to keep emphasizing that. Dr. Michael Osterholm joining us from the University of Minnesota. We thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. And finally, this reminder, be sure to sign up for this podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening. 